Well, as I said at the beginning of uh, our worship today, uh, we're starting a new series called Jesus Stories, and we're going to start with the one I read to you before. Uh, We know that Jesus told a lot of stories. We typically call them parables, and parable is that parabole. It means to lay things side by side for the purpose of comparison. Uh, I grew up in, in grade school. I was taught that parables were an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And each story Jesus told kind of had its own tone. Some of them were kind of gentle. Some of them were not quite so gentle. Some of them were pretty much in your face. And this one, when you heard it before, has kind of a tone of shock and sadness meant to produce a kind of a disturbance in the force, if you will. Uh, the warning springs from love, though, and comes from the one who reads every heart. I mean, God right now is reading all of our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows how easy it is to give the appearance of devotion and still have an empty heart. See, when Jesus told his story, though, he was talking to some of the most religious people in ancient Israel. That's setting this story in context a little bit. Uh, these words were not directed at a bunch of notorious sinners like thieves or prostitutes or whatever. But he was talking about people whose very religion had hardened their hearts. And he was talking to men who made their living by studying the Torah, the Old Testament, the Word of God. And he doesn't sound very happy with them. He doesn't sound very friendly with them. And so this parable was really told for scribes and the Pharisees and the whole religious establishment. And I didn't go so far as to saying this is a good word for pastors to remember as well. People who are part, you know, who's immersed themselves continually on God's word. And I would say that should apply to all of us who dig deep into the word. And so lest we kind of miss the point of this little story, he says in verse 45 again, the last condition of this man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this evil generation. So in this little parable today, this little story, Jesus kind of taking dead aim at people who thought these words would never, ever apply to them. I mean, what was the last time you ever thought about, I got to get rid of this evil spirit and then keep him out because seven more will come in on me. I I doubt that very many have ever considered that in our own lives. But there's a shocking thought here. I was looking at this in context again. No prostitute ever blasphemed Jesus' name. But the religious leaders did. Uh, There was no addict that you read about in the Bible that ever blasphemed the name of Jesus, but religious leaders did. Now, what should we learn from this little story? That's the key here. Now, if we study it carefully, I'm going to show you today, uh, hopefully, to see how the devil captures a soul in three easy steps. And here's step number one. It's called reformation. Not like Luther, but a reformation, a change. Now, remember the trajectory of this little bit, little story here. In the beginning, there was a man who was under the grip of an evil spirit. Now, if you want to say he was demon-possessed, okay, that's fine. Probably was. It's certainly true. But see, sin had a stranglehold on his life. Now, Jesus didn't tell us what, whether it was gambling or prostitution or uh, pornography, whatever it is. It doesn't make that much difference. He was a slave to sin, and his life had no positive meaning, and he sinned, and he sinned again, and then he sinned again, and then he sinned some more. He kept piling sin off. This was his life. This was his pattern. And for some reason, he couldn't do anything about whatever this sin was that he had himself caught up in. But then at some point, the demon left. The evil spirit left the man. 
Now, Jesus doesn't explain how he did it, doesn't explain why he did it. All we know is that the evil spirit suddenly left this man and began to wander in what were called waterless desert. Now, I'm going to say, don't forget the temptation of Jesus. Where did Satan come approach him? In the waterless desert. So Satan's always lurking somewhere. But now things for this guy began to improve. See, when you get to the middle of the story, he had cleaned up his life. Uh, the self-destructive habits are now suddenly gone. Uh, the evil spirit leaves. Uh, the desperate urges, whatever they were, uh, leave him. Uh, one day, whatever had a hold on him in his life is gone. Uh, all of the compulsions disappear. And the man then lives for weeks or months and who knows, maybe even years. Never goes back to those horrible sins that had him all caught up. And the urgence that were dragging him down kind of disappeared. But one day, like I said, when you least expect it, when you least expect it, someone says something slightly suggestive. Or maybe somebody sends him an email or a text message. And just like that, all of those old messages, all of those memories come flooding back again. And in less time than it takes to tell this story here in three verses, the flood overwhelms him. And where is he? He's back in the pit again. And in the end, what he never thought was possible happened one more time. He's worse off than he ever was before. And now this poor guy, poor woman, shame overwhelms them as they plunge deeper and deeper. Now the question is, what's happened? See, Satan called a retreat in order to set up an ambush. And the man walked right into that ambush. He made one fundamental mistake, and his mistake was he got rid of the evil, but he never replaced that evil with something good. See, once that evil left him, he made kind of a, a, kind of a moral rehabilitation, if you want a reformation, but his heart itself never changed. He swept the house clean. He got rid of the dirt. He wiped the crud off the walls. He, he washed the vomit out of the sink, you know, all that horrible stuff that was part of him. Uh, he made the house look good again, but he didn't put any new furniture in it. He didn't put anything in that new house, in that clean house to replace the evil. So the house was furnished, ready for someone to move in. You might say it was pretty clean, but it was empty. It's at this point where Jesus said, this man now is worse off than he ever was before. It happened so subtly that onlookers knew nothing about it. So this kind of leads me to a key point that I thought of. And I said, many people who seem free struggle terribly on the inside. Uh, that fact shouldn't surprise us. The fact shouldn't discourage us. Uh, even Paul, if you go back to read Romans chapter 7, what does Paul say? Oh, the good that I want to do, I don't do it. The bad stuff, oh, I'm really good at that stuff. Uh, you know, what he, he says, what an evil, wicked man I am. That's a struggle constantly between good and evil. Anthony, you'll appreciate this, comic books. One of my favorite Donald Duck cartoons a long time ago, he's heading to school and he gets to a crossroads where he sees the school on the hill and he sees the playground on the other and you saw a little cutaway of his head and there are gears up in his head and there's an angel, uh, an angel uh, Donald Duck and a little devil Donald Duck and they're wrestling around in his head. <laughs> and you ever been in that situation where good and evil wrestle, wrestle around? I mean, there, there's a struggle going on inside of a lot of people that we don't really see. 
Now, I don't think that should surprise us. I don't think it should discourage us. Like I said, Paul went through the same thing. Now, if you're anything like me, you can fall into the trap of sometimes thinking you're, you know, while you're not all that good, you're a whole lot better than most people. See, we clean up pretty good on a Sunday morning, and we probably all showered, put on some relatively clean clothes, and we look good, we're dressed up, we're pressed up, and we're all smiles. Uh, this is where all the happy clappy time. We kind of know the routine. We know what to say, but behind every smiling face, there is always a story. Rod Stewart said that every picture tells a different story. Many people who appear to be free of all the struggles of life, like with anger or resentment or rage or bitterness or a critical spirit or lust or you, you, whatever it is, a lot of people don't know what's going on in the inside because we're church people. And what would the other church people say about us if they knew about us? And so it is this guy ends up in a really bad place here. And most of his friends don't realize it because the battles of the heart are rarely ever seen by other people. So he's reformed himself. But here's step number two. It's called relief. You've got to give this guy his due here. Whether the demon comes back and saw the house he had left, it had been swept clean. Now the clutter is gone. Uh, the dirt has been swept out. Uh, the walls have been repainted. You know, the windows have been repaired. It's a whole rehab place. And everything looked great. So you've got to give this man some credit. He cleaned up his life. Now, we all know how hard it is to change. It is hard. And it seems like the older we get, hard, the harder change is uh, because we just get set in our ways. See, this man with a whole lot of hard work and deep resolution had managed to vastly improve his life. And God bless people who try to do this. And God bless people who, who work in an area to help people restore their broken lives. But, and like I've often said, there's always a but in these stories. This man's triumph did not last because it was incomplete. See, small victories can sometimes be a curse. They can lead us to pride, and that pride does what? Leads us ultimately to destruction again. Incomplete success makes us look in the mirror and say, hey, like little Jack Horner stuck in my thumb full of what a good boy I am, when we really haven't done anything to get ourselves straight. See, it makes us think that we're the one who makes it happen, uh, that we deserve the credit for breaking the habit, uh, that we somehow manage to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But as they say, you've probably heard this before, whenever you see a turtle on a fence post, you know one thing, he didn't get there by accident. So this man did some house, serious house cleaning, got his life in order to a point. He changed his habits, made things better on the outside, but nothing changed on the inside. And that's where step three comes in, called relapse. See, the problem is not pornography, and it never is. The problem is not alcohol, and it never is. Problem is not drug abuse. Never is. I mean, the problem is not sexual immorality. It, it never is. Those things are all terrible. But they tend to point to a deeper problem. Now, many years ago, when I was pastoring in the uh, Chicago suburbs at Lord of Life, I uh, had a young man call and ask if he could come in and talk to me. 
And I said, sure. I said, do you want to give me any heads up before you come? He says, I'm just struggling um, with some serious stuff. I've been struggling for some time. And when he came in, he told me that he was struggling with a form of sexual sin. And he had gone way down the path of destructive behavior. But here's the kicker in this little episode. His father was a local pastor. That's why he came to me. He didn't want to talk to his dad about this. Now, when he told me his dad was a pastor, well, it told me that he'd been exposed to the gospel somewhere because I kind of knew his dad. I kind of know the church. He was exposed to biblical teaching. And he realized that he had to do something pretty serious to change his way of life. I don't know, I could probably ask Jeff this question. Have you ever been struggling with something and somebody asks you a pretty serious question and all of a sudden the Bible passage goes, snaps on? I don't know if that was the rest of you. Well, this is a Bible passage I had read any number of times and I kind of blurted it out. It comes in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, The axe is already at the root of the tree. And this kid says, I heard my dad say that before. I said, what do you think that means? He says, well, uh, to break a habit, I guess you've got to lay the axe at the root of the tree because you can't just chop off the branches because the branches will, what, they'll grow back. See, in the story that Jesus told, cleaning the house was kind of like, what, hacking off all of the branches, but it left that evil root system behind. So while the house superficially looked better, it was still empty. And that's why Jesus said the state of that man was worse than the first, because his life looked like a furnished apartment ready for rent. I think we live in a neighborhood where there are a lot of furnished apartments that are ready for rent. We can talk about that because we got a request to pray against satanic activities in this area. But friends, no soul can stay unoccupied for long. Uh, either the Lord will come in or the evil spirits will. We know this is true because the demon said what? The demon said, I will return to my house, my house. And guess what he did? Only this time he came with seven, seven of his buddies. Uh, seriously, bad dudes, worse than himself. It would be like a gang finding an empty house in your neighborhood and making it their own. Only this time it was happening in the spiritual realm. So I imagine the demon uh, going back to the house and saying, Hello, anybody home? And when nobody answered, maybe he said, uh, Hello, uh, Jesus, are you there? <laughs> and if Jesus came to the door, guess what? The demon is gone. But Jesus did not answer. And the demon was free to enter. See, in this case, it wasn't just the demon that came in. He brought seven buddies with him, seven bad dudes. It says, hey, guys, guess what? I found a house that we can all live in. And so you got eight demons now moving to the house because the man had cleaned himself up by moral rehabilitation. But he's not filled that house with Jesus. See, this story, I kind of this story has been rattling around in my head for a couple of weeks when I decided to do these. I don't even know why I started with this particular story. Uh, maybe it had to do with your, your note about people asking us about praying against Satanism. Maybe that's what triggered it. But um, 
And it kind of rattled in my mind because I think it applies to you and me. Uh, see, Jesus aimed his words not to a bunch of prostitutes, not to a bunch of addicts, but to morally upright religious people like us. People like you and me. Indeed, if you go to church long enough, and I'm, I'm, I don't know any other way of life, to be quite honest. I mean, some of you are the same way. I, I've been in church since I was baptized <laughs> as a baby. Um, but if you go to church long enough, you kind of stand in great danger of believing somehow that you're a little bit better than you really are. And it's even more dangerous if you're a pastor. Well, I'm a pastor. I must be, therefore, invincible. You start to believe your own PR. Uh, and so you go to church, you hear a great teaching, and you say, oh, man, I wish there had been more people here this morning to hear this message because they could have really used it. When, in fact, maybe you need it more than they do. Does that hurt a little bit? <laughs> it hurts me to say that. It hurts me to say that about myself. See, something in all of us want to substitute Moral rehabilitation to genuine salvation. Big difference. The more religious we become, the more likely we are to clean up on the outside and leave the inside empty. See, when you leave the house clean but empty, you've opened yourself up to a whole passel of bad stuff, like seven demons. Now, I know I first really kind of learned this term down in prison a number of years ago. Guys would say, you must really have the indwelling of Jesus. And I said, yeah, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes talk about the indwelling as if it were some sort of an abstract doctrine. Yeah, I got it. But it's not abstract. It's the truth that sets us free. But I want you to consider this. When we come to Jesus, he comes to us. When we put our trust in Jesus... He dwells in us. When we believe in Jesus, he takes up residence. That's why, you know, the guys in prison refer to the Holy Spirit as the resident president. We've got, we've got the spirit in us. When we say yes to Jesus, he makes his, his home in our hearts, if you will. See, no amount of um, moral reformation can accomplish that. Only the new birth that comes from above. Now, we could talk about where does new birth come when it comes to the time of baptism. And that's what a lot of people believe. I was baptized. The Holy Spirit came to live. It can happen when you're 12, when you suddenly realize confirmation didn't make much sense until today. When the pastor said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who stands in the way of sinners, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That, by the way, was my confirmation verse. And I went, oh, man. <laughs> made me think of my friends and the path we were walking. And I'll be honest with you. I thought about it, but it didn't change me initially. It wasn't until I was about 17 or 18 when the four of us said, we can't be doing this anymore. We need to clean up our act. And thank God we didn't clean up, just clean up our act. It was kind of a joint confession of four guys who said, the Holy Spirit needs to really be in our hearts where it was placed when we were baptized. I could tell you stories about these guys and their lives, how they've changed. See, Jesus just doesn't say, clean it, clean yourself up and I'll come in. See, the invitation is always believe in me and I'll give you a brand new life. See, put it this way, the gospel, the good news, uh, gives you something much better than whatever it drives away. See, we discover the power of the indwelling 
Christ in the moment of bitter temptation. See, when we feel pulled to take down this, go down this um, downward path, Jesus says, no, Anthony, there's a better way. There's a better way. See, not only points Lou in a better direction, he gives him the power to walk in that direction. Uh, there's an old gospel song um, points out the difference between what I call moral reformation and the gospel. And it goes this way. Do this and live the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings bids me fly and gives me wings. See that last part, bids me fly and gives me wings, is truly a miracle when you think about it. Now, every sermon ought to have an application. I wish I had one. I do. I give you my application. Jesus told a very sad story about a man who cleaned up his life but left his heart empty and ended up much worse. Don't be like him. That's my application. See, when it comes to your works, um, don't just run away from your bad works. Uh, run away from your good works and run to Jesus. You know, it's pretty simple. Believe in him, trust in him, welcome him. See, that way when the devil comes and does that, comes knocking at your heart, and guess what? I'm soon to be 79. I've heard that any number of times in my life. And when he does that, ask Jesus to go and answer the door. And if you do that, guess what? The devil can't stay because he cannot enter where Jesus has already moved in. See, it's fine and good um, to go to church and to live as a Christ follower, but it will not help you unless Christ is actually living in your heart. Now, some people have cleaned up on the outside, uh, but they have never been washed, as we say, in the blood of the Lamb. We need to meet Jesus, and I just pray that God would help all of us to open our hearts and say, Lord Jesus, you are welcome here. May God bless us in that.